This is Toby Sumter with your CrossPolitik Daily News Brief for Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. Today's Daily News Brief is long. I couldn't help myself. Today you will hear about California releasing thousands of inmates in the holy name of COVID-19. Trump denies Minnesota governor's request for funds because the Minnesota governor is an idiot. A short legal history of the U.S.'s terrifying track record with quarantines with a brief splash of sunlight coming from Kentucky. California is to release 8,000 more inmates in the name of COVID-19. From Sacramento, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR, announced last Friday, July 10th, additional actions to protect its most vulnerable population and staff from COVID-19 and to allow state prisons to maximize available space to implement physical distancing, isolation, and quarantine efforts. Oh, great. The department estimates up to 8,000 currently incarcerated persons could be eligible for release by the end of August under these new measures, further decompressing the facilities. Let us decompress them. Decompress them. (laughs) We are glad the governor is taking action to release more people. This is absolutely critical for the health and safety of every Californian. What? Are we talking about the people in the state who might have these criminals harming them and harming their property? It's absolutely critical for the health and safety of every Californian that we release 8,000 criminals. Too many people are incarcerated for too long in facilities that spread poor health. Supporting the health and safety of all Californians means releasing people unnecessarily incarcerated and transforming our justice system. Did you catch that? What, what are they doing? They're using a health crisis in order to transform the justice system, says Jay Jordan, executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice. Somebody should check into that dude. CDCR's previous pandemic emergency decompression efforts, <laughs> they just keep using that word, have reduced inmate populations already statewide by approximately 10,000. 10,000 inmates already released to reduce the risk of COVID-19 transmission within its facilities, because that would be terrible. That would be way worse than criminals running all over the country. These actions are taken to provide for the health and safety of the incarcerated population. I'm done with that. Under release, authority granted to the CDCR security, which allows alternative confinement or release in any case in which an emergency endangering the lives of incarcerated persons has occurred or is imminent. What about endangering the lives of law-abiding citizens in California? Okay, I'm just going to keep going. Some categories of releases will require additional review for certain incarcerated persons. We call them men and women. And some cohorts will be screened on a rolling basis. All individuals will be tested for COVID-19 within seven days of release. Oh, good. We were worried about that. The Anti-Recidivism Coalition is encouraged by the governor's response to the dramatic spread of COVID-19 through California's prisons. Great. During these difficult times, it is vital that we all work to protect this vulnerable population and treat them with the dignity and compassion they deserve. Okay, where did they get that dignity? And what's the standard for compassion? And what do you mean by deserve? Sam Lewis, executive director of Anti-Recidivism Coalition. By what standard do I believe that prisoners should be treated with dignity? Yes, I do, because they're made in the image of God who has spoken in his word in the Old and New Testament and gives us laws 
that address what how criminals are to be treated and what actual dignity and compassion is do them i don't know where you got your standard mr lewis there are four levels of early release given in the document have been approved 180 day release standard so those who are within 180 days of being released already so these are very very petty offenses there's also those who are within a year of release standards for those prisoners also positive programming credits it's like getting gold stars on your record for sort of good report good behavior but it's sort of good behavior just because you weren't bad and there's covid it's on it's reviewed on a case-by-case basis um nearly no one who has been condemned to death or serving life without the possibility of parole is eligible for release also uh those who have had serious rule violations since march (laughs) wow um they're not eligible also most sex offenders are not eligible most Uh, also high risk medical individuals they are uh, likely um eligible High risk are considered to be at greater risk for morbidity and mortality should they contract COVID-19. They would include people over the age of 65 who have chronic conditions or those with respiratory illnesses such as asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease based on individual review of each incarcerated person's risk factors. The CDCR is reviewing potential release protocols for incarcerated persons who are in hospice or are pregnant. No persons don't get pregnant it's women i don't know if i trust you to know what justice is to know which criminals should remain behind bars and which criminals should be released if you can't tell the difference between a man and a woman christians should also keep in mind that we have crazy running in both directions here it is not the case that we have a biblical justice or criminal justice system in place in this here country I, I, of course, prefer this criminal justice system to any other criminal justice system I'm aware of on this planet because it has been heavily influenced by biblical principles. But just remember that there are likely many folks in prison for crimes that the Bible would not put them in prison for. Theft or vandalism, for example, are crimes that should be repaid and made right through restitution or temporary indentured servitude, working off a debt, making it right, contributing to making the thing that you broke right. That's biblical justice for those particular kinds of crimes. In a biblical criminal justice system, prison populations would be a fraction of what they are now. But it's entirely dishonest to weaponize a health crisis or a so-called health crisis to revamp criminal justice. We're going to transform the criminal justice system And since we have thugs running California who don't know the difference between boys and girls or a clump of cells and a baby, I don't trust them to revamp criminal justice on the fly with much of anything resembling good sense or biblical law. Now, do you wish you had better tools to deal with our crazy world? I mean, it's cray-cray. Do you know that the Bible applies to all of life, but sometimes you're just not sure how? Do you wonder how we got to this place where thousands of inmates are being released and we don't know the difference between boys and girls? Well, I want to invite you to join us for the first annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, 
Tennessee, October 1st to the 3rd. We put together a package that is full of feasting and psalm singing, hearty fellowship, and a lineup of speakers committed to showing you how God's word applies to politics, economics, business, education, creativity, marriage and family, and much more. Please join us this October 1st to the 3rd as we build a rowdy Christian culture for God's glory and our good. Go to fightlaughfeast.com and register today. Trump denies federal aid to Minneapolis. President Donald Trump has denied a request from the Democratic governor of Minnesota for money to rebuild parts of Minneapolis ravaged by rioters following the killing of George Floyd. Why? Well, because Governor Tim Walz let rioters destroy Minneapolis. That's why. The governor, Tim Walz, has now asked the president to declare Minnesota a major disaster zone in a request to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which would send the state's progressive government over 500 million after more than 1500 buildings were damaged by looting and rioting in the wake of floyd's death this is from the star tribune but tim walls governor of minnesota let the rioters destroy 1500 buildings and then he asked the president for money one Minnesota Republican urged Trump to reject the request. If the federal government is expected to assist in the cleanup of those unfortunate weeks, it has an obligation to every American prior to the release of funding to fully understand the events which allowed for this level of destruction to occur and ensure it never happens again, Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota wrote in a letter to the Trump administration. A conservative lawmaker from South Carolina praised Trump's ultimate decision to deny the request for taxpayer dollars. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey ordered the police to stand down as the city literally went up in flames. The mayor of Minneapolis ordered the police to stand down as the city literally went up in flames. Do I need to read it again? I just want to make sure you, you got that. Even as rioters torched the Minneapolis Police Department's third precinct, law enforcement officers abandoned it and let it burn. The New York Times, the New York Times even described one night of mayhem this way. As the night wore on, dozens of buildings burst into flames without a fire crew in sight. A six-story apartment building that was still under construction collapsed into a ball of fire. A high-tech factory was set ablaze. Residents called 911, desperate for help, but dispatchers were overwhelmed. Over three nights, a five-mile stretch of Minneapolis sustained extraordinary damage. The police precinct house itself was set on fire after the mayor gave orders to evacuate the building. The mayor gave orders to evacuate the building. A month later, the city is still struggling to understand what happened and why. Not since the 1992 unrest in Los Angeles has an American city suffered such destructive riots. In addition, progressive politicians in Minneapolis have repeatedly ridiculed law enforcement offices and have vowed to dismantle the city's police department even as violent crime continues to surge. Give them money? Don't give them money, Trump. Good job. Asked by CNN what Minneapolis residents should do if their homes are broken into and there are no police officers to call, City Council President Lisa Bender said, Yes, I mean, I hear that loud and clear from a lot of my neighbors, and I know, and myself too, and I know that comes from a place of privilege, because for those of us for whom the system is working, I think we need to step back and imagine what it would feel like to already live in that reality where calling the police may mean more harm is done. A group of black peace activists held an urgent news conference last week speaking out against city policymakers' plan to do away with the police department. It is time for us to stand up in this city, said Lisa Clemens, a former police officer and activist with A Mother's Love. She went on to tell reporters, It is time to tell the city council that Utopia is a bunch of BS. We are not in Mayberry, RDF. 
We are in the wild, wild west, and it is time for some answers. Judge issues restraining order on the governor of Kentucky. Wahoo. Some good news coming out of Frankfurt, Kentucky. Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced a Scott Circuit judge ordered Governor Bashir to cease issuing or enforcing executive orders related to COVID-19 unless the orders meet specific criteria for an emergency as outlined by state law. You, you'd, you'd, think, you'd think that would be assumed. Thank God for this circuit court judge. He can't keep issuing and enforcing executive orders related to COVID-19 unless the orders meet specific criteria for an emergency as outlined by state law. The judge stated that in order to issue and enforce executive orders about COVID-19, the governor must, shock, specify the state of emergency that requires the executive order, the location of the emergency, and the name of the local emergency management agency that has determined that the emergency is beyond its capabilities. We need to get some more of that reason, that kind of common sense in all our states, in all our cities. The governor cannot issue broad, arbitrary executive orders apart from the requirements of state law, and the judge agreed by today's issuing a statewide temporary restraining order, said Attorney General Cameron. This is a clear win for the rule of law and will help Kentucky families and businesses across the Commonwealth who have suffered and continue to suffer financial losses and economic hardship because of the governor's executive orders. I'm just going to reread that section really quick because I think you hear this, get this. The governor must specify the state of emergency that requires the executive order. Check. The location of the emergency. Check. The name of the local emergency management agency that has determined that the emergency is beyond its capabilities. Check. Those are, those are great things for you to check on your mayor, your governor's orders, and see if they have that kind of objectivity in their orders. Because if they don't have that kind of objectivity, we call that capricious. We call that arbitrary. You're just making it up. Next up, fairly terrifying precedent for coercive quarantines in the United States. So that you've got this welcome pushback from Kentucky, the circuit court judge, with a big breath of fresh air of common sense. In an otherwise rather terrifying history of coercive quarantines in the United States, at lawfareblog.com, you can read a long history of coercive health responses in American law. And there are other articles circulating arguing that there's long precedent limiting the federal government's power to quarantine, but granting nearly plenipotentiary police powers. I just really wanted to say plenipotentiary police powers for states and governors during emergencies, including epidemics. Meaning, basically, there's a really terrifying legal precedent for states basically saying, there's an epidemic, there's an emergency, we can do what we want to do. For example, the article cites a 1905 case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, where the Supreme Court upheld, upheld compulsory vaccination during a smallpox outbreak. The Supreme Court in 1905 upheld compulsory vaccinations during a smallpox outbreak. It explained that, quote, the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States to every person within its jurisdiction does not import an absolute right 
in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. There are manifold restraints to which each person is necessarily subject for the common good. Upon the principle of self-defense, of paramount necessity, a community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of its members. Now, that was having to do with smallpox. But courts have continued to rely on the Jacobson versus Massachusetts decision to uphold compelled quarantines. Most recently, the article states, during the 2014 to 2016 West Africa Ebola outbreak, two federal district courts relied on that Jacobson decision from 1905 to uphold involuntary quarantines of travelers returning from affected countries. In Hickox versus Christie, for example, the judge explained that New Jersey officials were entitled to some latitude in its prophylactic efforts to contain what is, at present, an incurable and often fatal disease. In Liberian Community Association of Connecticut versus Malloy, the court held that Connecticut's temporary quarantine limited in duration to the incubation period of a virus responsible for an epidemic that killed over 11,000 individuals was not objectively unreasonable. So in that case, they said this, this limited duration quarantine for the period in which the virus can incubate that was responsible for the death of 11,000 individuals was not unreasonable. That was reasonable for Connecticut to do, according to, I believe, the Supreme Court. The article suggests that the Jacobson case establishes two related principles that we anticipate would be decisive in legal challenges to coercive measures of epidemic control. So if you wanted to challenge these state laws, these orders by governors for quarantine, these are two principles that the Jacobson case seems to establish as precedent in our legal system. The first is whether the measure is deemed necessary by experts in public health, a factor on which the court in Jacobson placed great weight. Quote, it is to be observed that the legislature of Massachusetts required the inhabitants of a city or town to be vaccinated only when, in the opinion of the Board of Health, that was necessary for the public health or the public safety. The authority to determine for all what ought to be done in such an emergency must have been lodged somewhere or in some body, and surely it was appropriate for the legislature to refer that question in the first instance to a Board of Health composed of persons residing in the locality affected and appointed, presumably, because of their fitness to determine such questions. Pause real quick. Even though this article is largely defending or showing that uh, the United States has given a lot of leeway to states in ordering quarantines, I would note that in this particular part of the opinion, though, Notice that there is an objective standard. It's not, just the, it's not just the governor who can make an order, but rather it is deemed necessary by local public health experts. Now, I'm just as you know, dubious of public health experts maybe as, as the next listener, but, but at least there's something outside of the governing body checking it, and notice that it's, it's lodged in the locality. It's a board of health that's residing in the locality affected, in the city or the town or the county, one would presume, and it's been appointed then, presumably, by those same local people. That, there's some checks and balances there, folks, that we need to pay attention to. That's not absolute power. It's not absolute police power, even though this article and others like it are saying they can do what they want. Well, 
it seems like in certain cases that's been the case, but here, at least in this particular opinion, there are some checks and balances. The second principle that the Jacobson case established in legal precedent, at least thus far, is that courts should review such judgments deferentially, intervening only if they are arbitrary, unreasonable, or far beyond what is reasonably necessary. Those are the three key criteria. Arbitrary, unreasonable, or far beyond what is reasonably necessary. That's what would it would take for courts to intervene. That's, of course, what the Kentucky court has said. It was arbitrary, those orders not having checks uh, from outside uh, um, boards, uh, those who um, who would then uh, demonstrate that there was actually an emergency at hand. Again, from the Jacobson opinion, it might be that an acknowledged power of a local community to protect itself against an epidemic threatening the safety of all might be exercised in particular circumstances and in reference to particular persons in such an arbitrary, unreasonable manner or might go so far beyond what was reasonably required for the safety of the public as to authorize or compel the courts to interfere for the protection of such persons. This recognizes appropriately that health experts possess vital scientific expertise, that the judge does not, and that an epidemic, the exigency of stopping the outbreak, trumps most competing considerations. Now, what this article doesn't underline, though, is the thing that I, I want to jump up and down on is the, the, the locality um, and the fact that these experts are local. These are not blanket, these are not mass quarantine orders, at least according to this article, but rather are rather localized based on actual hot spots where there are lethal uh, epidemics raging. And, and there again, there's a, there's a check with local health officials uh, making those calls. Under Jacobson, courts might reject a measure only if it were arbitrary, were unreasonable, or went far beyond what was reasonably required for the safety of the public. Such a finding would likely be closely tied to whether or not it had been adopted on the recommendation of experts in public health. These would be things to check. All right, I've got a bunch more there. You can read it, read about it in, in the notes. Much of the yeah budding of legal precedent for quarantines has a point. Okay, so there's articles circulating saying, yeah, but... U.S. legal precedent has allowed for quarantines. But this this really shouldn't come as a reason to quiet down and relax about all of this. If legal precedent is actually far worse than many of us expected, then we need to get busy now. But the fact remains that at least one circuit court judge in Kentucky has recognized that some of these emergency quarantine orders are arbitrary and unreasonable, and therefore illegal. It also stands to reason that a case might be made arguing that if the fatality numbers for COVID-19 are within the ranges of other airborne respiratory sicknesses of the last century, it does not in fact represent an emergency, an existential threat or crisis, and therefore does not warrant emergency powers and coercive quarantines, especially for the healthy. Do your homework, get busy, get to work. Last, okay, this is way over time, I know. David Bonson gives us the numbers. I'm way over time, but I did want to point to you David Bonson's daily COVID markets missive. If you're not listening to this, what's wrong with you people? If only for this last weekend's edition, which crunches the COVID numbers very carefully, just to whet your appetite, he begins by noting, the mortality data we get is reported by states. The date of when the deaths happened is irrelevant to the media. If two people died on a day in New Jersey, 
and 55 people died weeks and months ago. The media reports that 57 people died that day. It happens over and over. But eventually those deaths get reported to the CDC and the CDC actually updates with a lag when the deaths actually occurred. But the media doesn't pay attention to that, in addition to when the deaths were reported. In fact, 3,500 of the 6,600 deaths reported last week took place before May 2nd. Okay, you can read the rest of the article. It's in the notes. Go find David Bonson, Daily COVID Markets Missive Weekend Edition. This is Toby Sumter with CrossPolitik News. You can find this in all our shows at CrossPolitik.com or on our app, which you should have already downloaded. Also become a Fight, Laugh, Feast club member. Why wouldn't you? Don't you love the truth? Don't you love Chocolate Knox? Don't you love the water boy? And don't you want to come to our conference? You get lots of access to cool membership material, t-shirts, content, and $100 off your registration for the first annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, Tennessee, October 1st to the 3rd. Go to fightlaughfeast.com. Register now. Have a great day.